An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, It's a pleasure to have this person on my pod today. It's such an interesting pod out there. And I love turning you guys on to things that I find interesting, kind of brain-stimulating, engages you in a way. Uh, she's former host of Morning Edition, NPR, and uh, but she's doing a, a podcast at Vox Media called Today Explained. She's the co-host of it. It's really interesting. And this month, their topic is Blame Capitalism. Ooh, we're going to find out a lot more about that and what's going on. Noel King, welcome to Black on the Air. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's an honor to have you. It's so great to talk to you and meet you in person and everything. You know, many people, like, you know, when they meet people like yourself, they hear your voice all the time. And it's like, oh, that's what, that's no king. Oh, that's what she looks like, you know. But you have a, a great voice. I love, uh, it's very soothing. We trust your voice. You have that type of voice. Have people ever Thank said you. that to you? Yeah, they do all the time. Yeah. That and you're either much older or much younger than I thought. That's hilarious. I love, I love the <laughs> younger. I love it. <laughs> it goes, it, but it cuts both ways. That's oh, it sure does. Yeah, well, trusting voice people think is older, which is interesting, you know. Yes, people tend to land on the side of, oh, I thought you were in your 50s. Sometimes they've <laughs> right, said right. in your 60s. I'm like, okay, that's a bridge too far. Okay, that's going too far. <laughs> right, exactly. So tell us about Today Explained, uh, the show in general. How did this, how did you get involved with it? Uh, is your, was, was it already something that was going on? Because I didn't know much about it. And did you just join it or t- tell me what's happening with that? I did. Today Explained was created in the spring of 2018 by my co-host, a guy named Sean Ramos Firm. Okay, And it's it. this daily news show that is really fun, really sound rich, really kind of positive about the news, even though mm-hmm. Sean and I are both old school journalists. And so, right. you know, we take the news seriously. But I remember um, I started listening to it when I was at NPR. I had mm-hmm. gone down to um, I'd gone down to Memphis to cover the 50 year anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. Right. It was a very serious trip. I mean, mm-hmm. it was dark. I was talking to older people who remembered it. I was talking mm-hmm. to younger people. This is during the Trump administration who were mm-hmm. feeling all kinds of ways about the country's politics. And I said, okay, I, I knew Sean through reputation. He's got a reputation as like an audio genius. I was like, let me check out his daily news podcast. And I was like, oh my God, this is really fun. This is really, really fun. He's young. He's got a fresh sound. And then I got to the end and the podcast is fact-checked, which if you know anything about news, fact-checking news is rarely done because it is very expensive. Mm. And when I heard that it was both fun and fact-checked, I was like, oh damn, that is something that someday I would love to get it on. And then three years later, Sean called me up out of the blue and was like, I'm looking for a co-host. And I was like, oh, wow. no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kismet. And I'm, I'm really glad to be here. 
Now, so what is the purpose of the of it? Is it to give us more information, like plugging in the gaps, that type of thing? Because I know it can be frustrating in this journalism world, depending on what platform you're on, where maybe you have certain time intervals where you can get the information. And I know journalists get frustrated with whatever amount of time they have. Like I watch PBS NewsHour sometimes just to get a a long bath of the news. There you, you know? go. You like context. You're yes. swimming in the Luxuriate context. in a bath yep. sometimes. You yep. need that PBS <laughs> news hour. Yeah. I like that. I like the expression plugging in the gaps. I mean, mm. I worked for a long time at Morning Edition where everything is three minutes, right? Right. And it doesn't right. go beyond that. And sometimes that's great. Sometimes the story only needs three minutes. There's a mm-hmm. wildfire in sure. Canada. Three minutes is enough to understand that. But when it comes to American politics, mm. three minutes is not enough. Yeah. Around the time in 2020 that George Floyd was murdered, three minutes was not enough. Mm. And I found myself feeling really dissatisf- dissatisfied. I'd come from long-form journalism at NPR's Planet Money, where I covered economics. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I really want 20 minutes to be able to ask questions and to be able to explain a thing. And not everybody wants that, truthfully. There are people who yeah. are like, I want to go in, do the news, and get out. It's a personality type that says, I want to luxuriate in a bath yes. of the context, you <laughs> right. know? And I don't always feel like that because I am still a fan of network uh, nightly news, that newscast, because I think there's a value to the way that's produced and it gives you a feeling of a lot of stories. I think yes. there's a value to that that I think is kind of underestimated, you know? But yeah, sometimes you just need the more context. You're like, what happened? What's going on? You right. Know? Why is it happening? Yeah. What are there? What are the biggest issues that you feel the public is kind of underinformed on these days? The economy. The economy. Really? I think we've set up the economy. I think the people. This is going to sound a little paranoid. Forgive me, but I no, that's people, all right. That's okay. <laughs> you like on this show? I think the people who run the economy benefit from us not entirely understanding how it works. Interesting, right? There's this high level thinking. If you think about the way economists talk. They're always using words that they don't really need to use. It's like, sir, ma'am, you could actually say that far more simply than you just did. Like, give me an example. Would, give me an example. Oh, I mean, let's see. When that's a really good question. What's an example? There's mm-hmm. all of these acronyms like GDP and unemployment and these sure. these words and numbers that just get thrown around. Mm-hmm. And I feel like on a basic level, you understand what unemployment is. But then there will be this dense language about like what the unemployment rate means this month and the sense yeah. that like it, it's changed from last week. And you really need to understand that to be like hip to what's going on. I think you saw a lot of this around the time of the financial crisis when mm-hmm. Even experienced journalists, and you're going to hear some of this in the series we did on capitalism, even experienced journalists and economists were like, we don't know how to explain it. (laughs) We don't know what. I talked to a woman who has like a, she's a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire in economics. She's Mm -hmm. a CB. And she's like, I had no idea how to explain the financial crisis to undergraduates. It was so damn confusing. I mean, the way I understood it was through the big short. That's exactly right. The movie, right. Michael Lewis explained Michael it to Lewis, me. Michael <laughs> yes. Robbie in a bathtub. Like, yes, you need exactly. to be made to pay attention. Oh, that's what a tax default swap is. Oh, the, exactly. Like, exactly. Oh, that's what a CBO. It's really, oh, really yeah. interesting. And I think that, you know, the economy affects all of us. And as an American, I always want people to vote in their interest, right? Mm-hmm. The country's become very politically divided. I'm a reporter. I try to stay out of it. But one thing I will say, I want people to vote in their best interests. See, that's interesting. I feel like, I feel like we're divided on that, you know, and this is, you know, my global look at things. I like to look at 
you know, I don't say both sides because people have a comment about both sides, but I like to look at the whole picture. I think it's a better way to look at it. You know, what is the complete picture? Don't just show me a part of it. I feel like uh, the right more or less uh, votes what they think, like they have more permission, I think, to vote for their individual interests that something that helps them personally, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the left is more pressured to vote for the general interest. What's best for the whole? You know, and there's more pressure if you're on the left to do, even if it doesn't affect you. Well, you should be voting to help these people. You know, what's wrong with you? We're on the right. It's like, well, I'm a farmer. I got to look out for mine, you know, and there's more permission for that on the right. You know, it seems like to me. I think that's a very interesting theory. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you something, you know, I, serious journalist, but I am very invested in the concept of personality types. Yes. And I often do think my friends who are progressive are just a different personality type than my friends who are conservative. I think so too. That is, you know, no one, I have never heard it put that way. That's very, more so than politically, it's more their personality and how yeah. they view the world in general, right? Their, their relationship to it, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Who comes first? Is it you or is it something right. else? And this is where, you know, the environmental movement, you will have people speak out in, in, on behalf of That's the right. environment, like very passionately. And then someone on the right looks at that and it's like, what the hell are you talking about? Why right. Why would that have to affect me, a person who wants to drive a truck? Exactly. I'm going to lose my job because you want to help the people in India. And right. this is where it gets really tricky. This yeah. is where it gets incredibly tricky because the losing of the job is like much more than cosmetic. That is a very real and powerful thing. Absolutely. And this is why I think if people understood what is going to make you lose your job, hmm. that's where the self-interest comes in. I mean, I wish yeah. people would say, if the economy is not working for me, if I can't pay my rent, if I can't, if I'm, you know, I talk to young people for this series, they're like, I'm never going to buy a house, right? That's yeah. just, that is absolutely forbidden for someone like me. I'm 24 mm -hmm. years old. It's not going to happen. Um, I think if people looked at the broader picture and said the economy is not working for me, what, who is the candidate that is most likely to fix it? You do need to have some sense of history. You mm -hmm. do need to have some sense of what has worked in the past and what hasn't. And you do have to have some sense of what politicians have promised in the past and been able to deliver on. But yeah, I sometimes think that if people would purely look at, can I pay the rent? Can I feed my kids? Can I put my kids through college? Can I pay off my student loans? And that was the only thing they voted on. I suspect we might be in a slightly better place. I think younger progressives are thinking that way because they're thinking about like student loans that affects them directly. I need to pay this off. You know, what am I going to do? You know, so I think they are getting more personal with their relationship to it where, you know, the boomer generation was more, you know, that we have to save the world type of thing, you know? Yes. And, uh, and it's funny because the youthful right is changing a little bit too, because they're thinking about these social issues that affect everybody. Like, I don't want kids being taught something in school, not necessarily their kids, but let's control information for all children, like what's happening in Florida, you know, that sort of thing, as opposed to just my kids. You know. That's right. And there's another right. strain of that that I think is so interesting in the young right. What you see when you talk to some, a lot of these folks is an interest in like, mom gets to stay at home. Mm -hmm. We don't want to deal with a two-parent working household. We want a household that is traditional. We want to go back yeah. to the way it was. The woman doesn't work. The woman stays at home. I was covering CPAC in Hungary a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. CPAC in Budapest, Hungary. Of course, the right is kind of fixated on Viktor Orban. And that's Viktor Orban's whole policy. Yeah. It is like, let's get gay people out of public life. Let's yeah. have a mom and a dad in the home and the mom stays home with the kids. Everybody should have four to six kids. 
And the Republicans were there, CPAC, so a strain of Republicanism was there, and they were eating it up. They were, yeah. that whole that whole conference, I did not hear the word business or big business come up at all. It was all about these social issues and about how the government, which usually conservatives don't like the government, right? They want small government. I don't think it's that way anymore. I think there are a lot of conservatives who it's are like, bizarre. what can the government do for me? And they're, you know, they will look at like, I mean, Ron DeSantis. This is a Republican governor attacking mm-hmm. a business. I, Sir, I still can't believe what? that. Cannot what? believe it. It in doesn't make sense. In our lifetime? It's over a social issue, though. Over a social issue. It's not issue. over an economic issue. There you go. There right. you go. He has chosen, and many others have chosen to, to say, the social issue, issues are more important to us. And that's that is a progressive that, like, move. You know, that is ex- Georgia saying, sorry, you can't have the... You can't have the all-star game here because of blah, 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 you know? That's exactly right. Um, so, yeah, that's shifting where that's happening for that, where, you know, it's funny you were talking about Orba. Did you see a Tucker Carlson talking to them? I mean, that was oh, yeah. crazy. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Tucker loves I think loves he, he must have been there for, for that convention. That does, what is this thing about authoritarianism and, you know, the rights connection to that without penalty you know like the praising of putin that happened when obama was in office it started there and uh and kept going through trump's like adoration of this and with kim jong-un but it's it it's more about that because it's about this embrace of authoritarianism in its worst forms in fact i don't understand where that's coming from is that an economic thing or what is that i think so i think Mm -hmm. so i think people want to feel safe I think around the time that capitalism broke, which is the, you know, the um, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. I think democracy started breaking right around the same time. Mm. And there have been really good books written about this. Martin Wolf has a new book out, um, the, the, the Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, I believe it's called. I read it for the series. Mm-hmm. And he sort of traces how, you know, financial crisis happens and people begin to lose faith in everything. They're like, wait, the yeah. system doesn't work. The government's bailing out big business, but not me. I'm underwater on my mortgage. I worked hard. What the hell is going on? And then you have actors on the right, like the Koch brothers. Remember remember when we found out that the Koch brothers were behind the Tea Party? And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> we all thought it was the grassroots. It was the right. billionaires all along. Like, that was uh, an was incredible moment. Yeah. It was a lot of puppet strings. And we, we, we cover that in the series as well. But yeah, I just think that there has been this, I mean, the way Martin Wolf, who's a, a, a brilliant commentator for the Financial Times puts it, is... Mm-hmm. We get into these panics and we go looking for someone who sounds like they know what they're doing. And the great thing about an authoritarian is that gentleman, and it is always a man, really sounds like he knows what he's doing and what he's talking about. He is confident. And if you're looking for someplace to like lay your weary head, you're going to lay it in the bosom of a man who's like, I can get your job back from China. Yeah. It's funny. I see parallels uh, to the 1930s too, you know, when... um you know, you had that global collapse. And to me, I said, hey, if you're a communist in the 30s, that makes sense. People thought, you know, that this form of government we had constructed was not good. Look what just happened, you know. Um, And of course, it was a global issue. It was, you know, it's a lot more complicated than people give it credit for, too. A lot of it came out of, um, you know, Germany's inflation just getting so out of control. And the United States unwilling to like loan money to Europe in the free way that they had before. Like, mm, we're not sure if this is a good investment. Right. Yeah. And these are the stakes. I mean, really, these are the stakes of a bad economy. 
The yeah. whole world goes to war. We're lucky to have avoided it for the past, you know, 60 years or so, 70 years or so. But I, this is why I love reporting on economics and talking about economics. It sounds boring. It is, in fact, not boring at all. It is mm-hmm. the most interesting thing out there because everything stems from it, including political crises, including wars, and on and on down the line. And do you think that 2007, 2008, and I'll throw the pandemic in there, do you think that's fundamentally changed our relationship to capitalism? And then I'll get into capitalism as a subject too, or I won't even say capitalism, let's just say people's belief in government as it is, or government economic policies as they are, let's say. This is a really interesting question because mm-hmm. one thing that I really wanted to do in this series was I wanted to figure out exactly when everyone started talking about capitalism. Because I was born in 1981, Mm -hmm. and I am telling you, sir, in my youth, we (laughs) did not talk about capitalism. (laughs) We talked about bosses sucking. We talked about banks being terrible. We talked about CEOs. But we did not condemn the entire system the way the young people are doing now. Yeah, I did not either. In fact, we were pro-capitalists in my day. Like, Here's what the 80s was for me, because I was older, of course. The 80s was commercials of how you can get into real estate and make your fortune, you know, to show guys in their, you know, in their limousines, they just made a fortune. And it was all about how can you make your, how can you get your money? How can you break out there and that type of thing? And and you know what was very convenient about the 80s was that capitalism had a really bad enemy. There was communism lurking in the distance. Oh, absolutely. to be pro-capitalist was also to say, I don't like what's happening in the Soviet Union. I don't like what Pol Pot did. And linked to democracy itself. Yes. Right. These two things were twinned. From the mm-hmm. 80s onward, it was like, wherever capitalism wins, democracy will win also. Right. And so even if you were like, my dad had worked on Wall Street, and he was he was he he didn't like it. He had, he had retired when he was in his 40s. He had left it behind. He's like, those people are terrible. But in his mind, I think, in his mind, I know— as long as capitalism was accompanied by democracy, mm-hmm. then it was going to be okay, you know? Mm. And mm. so when we went looking for like, okay, when did we all start slamming capitalism? We have this brilliant fact checker, Laura Bullard, and she said, she found out, she's like, we started talking about socialism first. It was 2009. Mm. Obama is bailing out banks and homeowners and everyone he can because the economy is about to collapse. Right. And this is where you first start hearing people condemn the system, but the system they're condemning is not capitalism at first. It is socialism. Obama's a socialist. And I think back to that time, and I'm like, yeah, no, I remember hearing that. And I remember it being a little bit weird, like socialism. We haven't talked about that in a long time unless we've been hanging out in Finland. Mm -hmm. But it was something like the rhetoric around that became so useful that to be anti-Obama was to be anti-socialist and therefore Mm pro-capitalist. And so then the word really goes into the mainstream. And pro-American. And pro-American too. But anti-big government. Pro-America, anti-big government, pro-small government, pro-small business. There were all of these things melding together. And the two terms, socialist and capitalist, come to mean socialism is bad Obama bailing people out when he really shouldn't, and capitalism is small business. Now, that's BS. Capitalism in America has been big business for a very long time. And the Koch brothers pulling the strings, they knew that. But the grassroots didn't always come around to understanding that. Two years later, two years after Occupy, during which time the company, the country's politics get very toxic during Occupy. Or sorry, two years after the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. Right? The, and the Tea Party started when Bush was still president. The Tea Party because started— Because he tried to pass TARP, I believe. Here's what's really interesting. If you, if you ask people, what is the day the Tea Party started? They will tell you there was 
dissent when Bush was president. But the actual Tea Party itself starts in February 2009. It's a day after President Obama has given a speech in Arizona saying he's going to bail some homeowners out. Some people who are underwater on their mortgages, the government's going to take care of them. Rick Santelli, who is a personality for CNBC, gets on TV and he starts talking about losers. These losers who got mortgages that are too big. <laughs> right. Yes, sir. Exactly. I remember that. Yes. Just so mad. And I think he says, we talked about that in The Daily Show at the time. Oh, you would have. You absolutely would have. And he says, Santelli says, all of you capitalists who think this is wrong, let's start a new tea party. And that's, that's it. That's the tea party uh-huh. right there. We talked to activists who were like, My son sent me that video of Santelli, and I started the Tea Party chapter in St. Louis, and we went out, and we didn't like the big government. And so it's really, really fascinating. I I asked this activist, I said, what what did you talk about when you talked about capitalism? And he's like, well, you know, and then he gave an answer that was kind of disjointed and made me think, like, the word came up, but he didn't really know what they were saying. He knew Mm -hmm. that they were supposed to be pro-business and anti-big government, But when I talked to researchers about that same time, you know, researchers who had studied the Tea Party movement, they were like, if you went to a Tea Party rally, they would hand you a copy of Milton Friedman or Friedrich Hayek. And they would say to you, capitalism is good. And this woman who interviewed Tea Party activists said, and then you would kind of hear them repeat what they had heard at the rally. Mm -hmm. And there there wasn't always a great understanding of like what capitalism was, which is not to call people stupid. It's complicated stuff. And um, but she said, you know, the rhetoric becomes Socialism bad, Obama bad, capitalism good. And if you can simplify it that way, well, it's pretty simple, isn't it? It's an easy thing to believe in. It's it's interesting because, I mean, it, once again, looking at the whole picture, capitalism is so much more complicated than that. And not only that, we haven't had unfettered capitalism since the 19th century. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt instituted, you know, uh, tariffs or not tariffs, but, you know, regulations and that sort of thing was widely criticized by his own party for that sort of thing. He was the the first president to really use the arm of government to, you know, put a little check on just unfettered capitalism. So it's been going on for a long time. It's not like we've had this free capitalism without any consequences forever. The government has been a partner in this for for a long time, right? I love the word unfettered. I really do. Because if you Mm -hmm. look at what unfettered capitalism wrought, the slave trade, colonialism. And like, I don't I don't ever want to go down the, the path of like, every, you know, one system is all mm-hmm. bad. There are some good things about capitalism. Absolutely. You can strive, right? You can, mm-hmm. you can achieve. You can work your way up the ladder. We've done it. But I think the thing that we tend to forget is when you have a globalized system and the point of that system is to make profits, reinvest those profits so you can keep making profits. At a mm-hmm. certain point, if you don't hit in enough, you get a global slave trade, you get colonialization. It's like, ju- let's just get every resource we can out of these countries, extract it, invest it, mm-hmm. spend it, pop, 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 pop. The depression happens. And in the 1930s, the U.S. government, at the at the advice of John Maynard Keynes, a very snooty mm-hmm. British economist, says- Keynesian uh, There economics. you go. Keynesian mm-hmm. economics. They say, we have to intervene. Laissez-faire mm-hmm. is not good enough. There's right. been a horrible, horrible, horrible series of events, and this country needs to drag itself back up. And that's where you start seeing government intervention in the economy right there. It is not a free market. Yeah. It is not a free market. It has not been for a very long time. And even, uh, you know, Marx in his, not, I'm not an expert on Marx, but um, I know he was the first one to really you know, talk about the exploitation of workers and that sort of thing, you know. And that idea was in the air during Keynesian's time, too, during the 30s. 
you know. It's back. That's what's so interesting about all of this is I, I tend to see this, you know, having studied it now for a long time as like mm-hmm. there's these pendulum swings. Yeah. We go from Ronald Reagan to Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. We go from Salvador Allende to, you know, the to the the junta. It's and and a lot of it is based in not like what do I really believe in about like religion or like, you know, what's mm-hmm. what's being taught in schools. It is what is the economy going to be? Is yeah. it going to be capitalist or is it going to be socialist? Is it going to be communist or is it going to be capitalist? And Again, we're talking about a lot of destruction comes along with these changes, but I think this pendulum swinging back and forth is so fascinating. And Joe Biden, you remember when he got in office, he put up a picture of FDR in in the Oval Office and mm-hmm. people were like, what is he saying? This man was saying, we're going to do Keynesianism under me. And I just think that's so interesting. Trump was like, no, 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 no. And mm-hmm. Biden was like, we're going back to the warm and fuzzy hand of the government. What form of capitalism are we currently in, would you say? So there's this term that gets thrown around late stage capitalism. Okay. It is oh, a, like it, is it's, a like it has a non- lifespan. <laughs> it sounds Uh-oh. amazing. It is a nonsense term that actually people have been using for a hundred years. Stage. It sounds late like sta- a cancer exactly. or something. Yeah. There's like a hope. Oh there's like a hope that this might be the end of it. And I find it really funny because I think young people kind of glommed onto it thinking like we're near the end. Oh my but God. come to find out, young people were using it a hundred years ago too. So it's not what stage of capitalism were we in? I asked a very smart economist this, the woman who has the CBE in economics in Britain. And she said, we just need a new ism. This mm. is the problem. The inequality has gotten so bad. The environmental problems wrought by capitalism have gotten so bad. It can't be the pendulum swinging back and forth. We actually have to swing forward into something different and we do need a new ism. I think what we're doing now still is capitalism. I don't think the markets are free, as we've discussed, not at all. There's always government intervention of some sort or another. If there's not government intervention, there's businesses pulling the strings behind the scenes so that the markets aren't free, right? Everybody's worried now about antitrust. Is Google too big? Is Amazon too big? Mm -hmm. They may have gotten too big because they were, you know, very deft at like pulling the strings and Mm -hmm. making the market you know, ride in their favor, run in their favor. So I think we're doing capitalism, but the people who say, the responsible economists who say we need a new ism, I'm fascinated by that idea. Very interesting. I was really lucky to be able to sit down with President Clinton a few years ago. Um, I was hosting uh, Forum for its Global Initiative, and before the show, I was backstage, and we just were shooting the shit for about like a good half hour, 40 minutes. It was awesome, just talking about a lot of things. And I was talking to him about some of these issues, and he's so smart. People forget how smart uh, Clinton was. And uh, he points to the relationship with corporations uh, shifted away from rewarding workers and even their own companies to rewarding shareholders as the fundamental difference in how things have changed, you know. And he went into detail about it, and I was like, fuck, you know, you're not wrong. You know, and to me, the market itself is, I feel, I feel we pay so much attention to the market and not the marketplace, you know, it's like too much on the market and not the marketplace. Like, look, we need to fix the marketplace and stop worrying so much about the market. You know, it's relative, these numbers and everything. It gives us some indications of things. But if we keep just reward, rewarding shareholders who don't do any work, you know, who aren't invested in these companies, right. they don't. They don't care. They bet, you know, shorting something is betting that a company's going to go under for yeah. Christ's sakes. Yeah. You know, it's some of the worst human instincts <laughs> that get attached to 
to shareholder mentality. I'm not talking about shareholders themselves, but but the way that that operates as an economic model, as opposed to the pure economics of a company doing well and everybody sharing in that glory, right? One of the things, yes, so dead on. I hope I explained that okay. You did. No, that was beautifully done. We trace in the series, so... Eastman Kodak was one of those big companies in the 1960s. Mm, yeah. I found this booklet that they would give new employees. And this booklet was like, you will get tuition. You will get dividends. You will get wow. housing. You will yeah. get work will be steady. It was cradle to grave benefits. <sighs> Do you know what the only problem with Eastman Kodak was at that time? At that Was that in the 60s? It was the early 60s. Uh-huh. And there was a certain type of person that Eastman Kodak was not hiring. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Black people, uh, women, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't black and white. It was just white. It was just white. You could take this a black and white thing. photo, but this, it's got to be white people taking those. <laughs> it was, was going to be a very fair photo. Right. You know, the companies that were doing these great things for their employees, and they really did exist, their employees tended to be white Americans who were the beneficiaries of the golden age of capitalism. When black Americans and others started to push back against that, we saw this upheaval in American life. And one of the things that we trace in the series is this really interesting essay. I know that sounds like it can't possibly be true, but in 1970, Milton Friedman, the popular economist who is mm-hmm. always on Phil Donahue, very accessible little guy, right. he writes an essay in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And he says, the sole purpose of a company is just to make money. That's it. It shouldn't get involved in social causes. It shouldn't be interested in the environment or workers' rights or unions. It should just make money. Now, people write essays in the New York Times constantly and nothing ever happens. Paul Krugman can write all day and all night and nothing will ever happen. But for whatever reason, Milton Friedman's essay hits at exactly the right time. And I suspect that what was going on, I mean, this is my thesis, is that Americans get very nervous by these social movements. And they're like, oh, all of a sudden people are pushing companies to to do stuff to get involved in civil rights, to get involved in environmental justice, to get involved with women. And so I think it hits at exactly the right time. And then within a decade, you have Jack Welch take over as the CEO of General Electric. And Jack Welch goes to work in the vein of Milton Friedman, so closely tied to what Milton Friedman has said. The purpose of a corporation is to make profits. But Friedman never said for who. The word shareholders doesn't appear in that essay. Jack Welch was the innovator who was like, the purpose of a corporation is to make profits for its shareholders. And from that point on, it was like, if if you have a company town and there's like, there are some redundancies or it's expensive to keep 300 jobs in that company town, cut those 300 jobs. The profits are all going to get kicked back to the people who own the stock. And Jack Welch just went on this tear for two decades. Anything that was redundant, anything that was expensive, ship the jobs off to India, ship the jobs off to China, close down the factory town. We don't invest in research and design anymore. And you know what happened to the stock price? Oh, it soared. It soared. It was a beautiful thing to watch GE's stock price rise as the rest of the company and its social responsibilities and its responsibilities to its workers are just falling apart. Bill Clinton is right. That's where those... uh the in the inequalities, the income inequalities, really exponentially were uh, created during the seventies, eighties, and nineties. I think because of, I don't share so much of the racial part of that, or that to me, I think I look at it more from a union standpoint. You know, because because there were a lot of blacks and people of color that worked in automotive industries, like in That's Detroit right. and some of these areas. And unions at first, the unions were very much. You know, like everything else in America, I always say everything in America to me has a racist expiration date, you know, (laughs) you know, but to me, it's more to what exactly what you're saying. It's because 
I've always thought it was bullshit whenever I hear, you know, these companies are job creators. No, they're not. They're profit creators. You know, Coca-Cola doesn't mean say, how many jobs did we create this last quarter? They say, how much profit did we make? Damn right. <laughs> you yes. Know? yes. And that to me, you, I feel you're, that is right on the button where people got, because a lot of white people lost these jobs too. You know, a lot of people in so many sectors were squeezed out and whole communities were lost. I mean, it's so interesting. It used to be that like coal mining companies and this type of thing, they used to build towns for people. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. I mean, that was like, the, that was too much control over people's lives. And you even had, you didn't even use U.S. currency. You used the coal mining currency. <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> like, right. This is exactly right. That's how things were drastically different, you know, during those times. You talk about cradle to grave. The only problem was they got you in the grave a lot quicker. Right. You know, yes, that's true. Coal mine. But they, you know, I did a story once on the Oneida company, the flatware that you find in mm-hmm, hotels. Yeah, right. I went up there to Oneida, New York. They had built this whole town. They had built schools. They had built parks. Right. They had built playgrounds. There was one that's story, right. the, the old, you know, the employees, the old people, the grandchildren of the people who'd worked there, they told me that one year the employees bought the CEO a powder blue Cadillac. That's how much they love this man. It's like, he's providing for us. We're going to get him. Can you imagine this right. man driving through town in a powder blue Cadillac that, he's, that his workers got him? That's I hilarious. don't know about you, but never have I thought I would like to contribute to get my boss a next Exactly. Call. I know who thinks that. It's who would deranged. Think that today. Yeah. So people's relationship to work and their job is changed. Um, because you're right, you know, my parents were of that generation. They were, their identity and who they were, were so connected to job, like a, a Ford person, if they work for Ford. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, they had, you know, apparel, you know, that, that's all they talked about. How dare you buy something else, you know? But uh, in our hustle economy now, <laughs> this age, it isn't about, there. Is there any kind of, Maybe with the big tech companies, do people have that type of feel like to Google or Apple or any of these types of things? Is that type of mentality where people feel, in other words, where people feel an actual personal connection to the company? I think when those companies are providing benefits, Mm -hmm. you know, Google doing its employees laundry and being like coffee and beer are free. I think when companies provide their employees benefits, the the employees do tend to feel a sense of loyalty. And I think these days it may be more misguided than it was back in the day when companies actually really did take care of people. Especially after these last brutal layoffs that happened. Yeah. The layoffs that happened and then the next day the stock price went up. Yeah, I know. It's, exactly, exactly. Right? It's like yeah. you cannot you cannot get out of this cycle. But I know I'm so interested to hear you talk about unions because you and I mm-hmm. have, have about, I'd say about 20 years between us. Right. Mm-hmm. And I grew up, I was born in Ronald Reagan's era that's which right. is right as the unions are being eviscerated. Mm-hmm. So for me, in my in my like mental calculus, the unions don't even exist. This right. is why I love talking to people yeah, of different generations because so you're yeah. like, never forget though that unions unions were a, a net positive for both Black Americans and White Americans, and in some percent. cases even women. Yeah, a thousand percent. Yeah, absolutely. That's the movie Norma Ray. You know, it's kind of like the spirit of that. You know, there you go. But uh, because what uh, the thing, even though unions weren't perfect and everything. But what it did get in the way was that unfettered capitalist idea where workers could be just exploited as long as they were making profits. Who cares how many hours you got to work or these types of things. And, you know, some of it, I feel, got excessive in some ways. That's that's human nature and that's to be expected. But it doesn't mean you you have to throw it out. The turning point, and you're absolutely right, was when Reagan uh, just turned his back on the... um, uh, flight controllers, uh, what is it called? The air traffic controllers. Air yeah. traffic controllers. That was huge. That had, no one thought that would happen. 
and uh, completely busted them. And he was seen as a hero by his uh, supporters for doing that. And to me, that was the first death knell for the power and the strength of unions politically, at least, you know, and, and for people feeling that the union's always going to be there or that there's a future for this. You know, that's do you remember solid. that happening? Like, do you oh, remember? Oh, absolutely. It? Vividly. Okay. Did yeah. it feel like a turning point? Was it no, like, oh shit. Not at the time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not at the time. Because remember, you're living in the fullness of this type of thing. Yeah. You know? uh, it just seemed like a, a, a spat and then everything would go back to normal, you know? But you, it's hard to see those turning points in the moment, you know. This is that, why people, all of us, need to read history because yes, it's impossible to think this this thing, this one yeah. incident, this one essay, this one president will be the most relevant for the next mm-hmm. forty years, you know. Right. In fact, rewarding shareholders in the moment—that sounds like a good idea. Like if you're an investor and everything, like this is fantastic. You know, why didn't we think of this years ago? You know, and if you if you have a four hundred one k or a four hundred three b, that's exactly right. We are all—I mean, complicit. It feels like we're all sharing in that. Yeah, you know? that's the thing. We're mm-hmm. all complicit in the shareholder economy. Anyone who anyone who doesn't have a pension and is re- re- relying on a four hundred one k or four hundred three b to retire someday really is complicit. And I don't mean complicit in a bad way. I would like to retire. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. And that was a shift too, because your companies used to give you a pension. Yep. You know, and companies that, uh-uh, what we'll do is uh, let's shift it to you doing that, which was yep. why people always wanted to do that to social security. And that hasn't happened yet. Yes. Yet, I say, you know. Fingers crossed. My gosh. <laughs> can, you imagine, can you imagine being old in America with no social security? I don't know. No, it's terrible. No, the, the thought of doing that to me is just irresponsible. It people don't understand why it was created in the first place, you know. Right. Um, but I wonder how young people feel about that. Do they feel differently about that, or you know? Do you mean about the shareholder stuff, or about well, about all of this relationship with government and like, for instance, mm. and here's where I disagree with young people because I say young people, but you know what I mean. The uh, Let's say new thinking. I'll put it like that. Rather there you than go. People, because I don't want to put everybody in one basket. But but there is some new thinking that the way I describe it is that people are snotty about property. You know, <laughs> like property doesn't matter. But you can't compare lives to property. It's like, well, who's making that right. comparison? <laughs> right? No well, one's trying to. It's like you're making that comparison. And to me, as someone of a certain generation, like, Property ownership was one way to get out of poverty. You know, it's something you can hand down to your children. You know, that's where you get generational wealth. Yeah. Many times it's through property, you know, and I've seen it firsthand. I've done it myself, you know. Um, and I think there's, you know, every generation feels like they won't be able to own property. Sometimes it feels out of touch. I remember, you know, looking at prices when I was starting, but, you know, this feels like the most bleak, <laughs> you know it does um it outlook does. on what and and i think the definition and the role of property too is changing which really worries me you know because maybe because i disagree with it i mean i think that um i think you're right about the house used to be the way you pass on wealth to your kids mm-hmm. if you don't own the house you probably aren't passing on very much right nope. because nope. for the longest time it was your pension and your house and so, I don't know, you look at these wild imbalances. The New York Times had a great story about in the next decade or so, as, as the, you know, the boomers pass on, 
the older right. boomers, not your boom. The mm-hmm. boomers pass on. There's like yeah. a trillion I'm in moonshot dollars. generation. That's there what I you call go. Them. There I'm you go. Boomers. I'm moonshot. I like that moonshot generation. <laughs> they, oh right, you're like a you're like a later on. They, I'm in the '60s. I was a kid when they were hippies and all that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> got another forty years to get through. But you but you look at the boomers and how much they have. And how did they get there? The economy boomed. Their houses mm-hmm. went from being, you know, you pay 20 grand for a house and today it's worth a million. No exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Right. That wealth over the next couple of 10, 15 years is going to be transmitted to a lot of younger people, a lot of millennials, mm-hmm. a lot of Gen Xers, a lot of moonshot, right. even Gen Z, they'll be getting their parents' wealth. And so that's something to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. But I, But the idea that you've got to inherit it, that you can't work and get it yourself, something about that makes me real mad. I don't know. Well, I don't know. The reasons for that, of course, is the out-of-control market for certain things. The biggest one, which is the bet noir of this generation, is education, which mm. I still don't understand why, In if you look at that 40-year trend, edu- educate, prices of education and real estate have kind of followed each other. Yep. I don't know if there's a correlation, but they're the only two things that, to me, have risen so substantially. Even the price of gas has gone up and down right. and steadied and gone up in this way, but nothing has, why has education risen so much? I agree with young people who say it's, it costs too much. You know, of course they're saying government should pay for it and all this. I have disagreements about some of those things, but I do agree mm-hmm. that it, it should not cost that much. Number one, it's not worth that much. No. Because it's worth no. should be, measured in the marketplace. Otherwise, what are you paying for? Just no one's, I can go read in a library. I can educate myself. You know what I think about that? I imagine that if you talk to somebody who specializes in education, they'd have a really good answer about why is the price of education gone up. But if you think about it like an economics reporter at, at its basic level, it's because people will pay. You could not charge 70 grand a year for a kid to go to Harvard if there were not people willing to pay that price. And this is the thing that's so incredibly frustrating is that for a long time, starting in the 90s, we tell kids the manufacturing jobs have gone overseas. You're going to need to get a college education to compete in the marketplace now. And you've got parents freaking out thinking my kid has to go to college to be able Mm -hmm. to succeed. That college can turn around and say, okay. That's going to be 60 grand a year. And the parents will pay it. And if they can't, the kids Shaking will take out down. loans. This yeah. is the thing. I mean, I, ne- I don't want to, there are many good educational institutions in this country, but there are times when it feels like a shakedown. And oh, it is because it's loans. not, it is not worth the price that they're charging. It's not, No, you know, it's valuable. And some people say, well, good education is invaluable. Yes, but there's still a price. There's still, so, you, you're actually paying for something that can destroy you financially and you cannot make it up in the other end in many cases. That was, that's the biggest difference from when I was coming up for sure. You know, there was never, never a thought that paying for school would destroy you financially. That's yeah. the thing. And destroy is the right word. Yeah. I, I have a friend, you know, I have many friends who have student loans, but I have one friend who stands out large in my mind. She was 40 years old. And she was in more debt at the age of 40 than she had taken out at the age of 22 or 23 to go to graduate school because the interest had piled up so yeah, much. Yeah, that's criminal as far it's, as I'm concerned, it's too. It's deranged. Yeah. And she, you know, she would tell me, she's like, I can't buy a house. I'll never buy a house. I'll never own a car. I'll never own stock. I don't contribute to my 401k because I am spending all of my money paying down these student loans that are now larger. I think she had taken out 60 grand. And at the time when it was worse, during the, right before the pandemic, she was she was on the hook for a hundred grand. Now at that yeah. point, mm-hmm. she recently got student loan relief through the Biden administration. I don't know how it works. I paid off student loans, but they were like real small. But like you know, thank God for that. But if she hadn't, no, she never would have owned a home. She never would have built wealth. Full stop. Here's what's interesting to me. So 
you know, I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of uh, anti-capitalist movement, I'll say rather than young people, but anti-capitalist movement is related to how much they're in debt, you know, and blaming on capitalism when in fact it's been a collusion between government and enterprise because government getting involved in student loans. You yes. Know? And yet at the same time seeking relief from the same government. It's like government is this pimp that is like convincing you <laughs> 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 or it's like this drug dealer. No, nah, man, you got to buy this. Shit, you know, and then right. they're coming for their money, you know, <laughs> and that type of thing. And then at the same time, cutting you a break, giving you some more drugs, you know, this is the thing. This is the thing. And I think increasingly, I think young people, because they've lost faith in the kind of corporate ethos, mm-hmm. I think young people on the right and left are both looking at what can government do for me. Right. And for people like us, I mean, people like us who are like, remember the 80s, there's some suspicion of that, too. It's yeah. like, well, you know, if you give this government too much power, you got to, you, you know, you got to make sure that you're out there on your own and that you're hustling for yourself, too, that you're not relying on the government too much. I have some of those impulses, Right. And I, you know, I'm 42 years old. I'm an, I'm an old millennial. But I still have some of those like Milton Friedman, neoliberal mm-hmm. 1980s ideas about like, let's not let the government get too big, right? Let's right. not let them get too involved. I, I think Generation Z does not, I, I don't think they feel that, many of them don't feel no. that way at all. I have, I feel like I have a healthy dose of both. Because to me, I also saw, you know, with the collapse of some of the banks, like 1987 crash, I remember that one. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was the getting rid of regulations for savings and loans, not mm-hmm. too many regulations for savings and loans, you know. So it's usually when government takes its hand off of these things that we get into trouble, you know. Government should have been regulating these credit default swaps a lot mm-hmm. closer than they were, as opposed to there's too much regulation for it. It's Sometimes it's usually the easing of regulations that gets us into these problems. That's right, because the people who want the regulations eased want it for a reason. The businesses who want the regulations eased, it's not just like, oh, we're opposed to capital R regulation. It's like, no, we would like to do something. We would like to be doing things differently, and regulation does not allow us to do that. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family. Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Okay, so where are we now then? And I've listened to your first two episodes. It's so interesting. You know, I'm going to definitely be in your guys' rabbit hole for that whole thing. And, you know... I love rabbit holing these days, oh, going yeah. down, you know, finding oh, yeah. out things and re- rediscovering some things too. But this is an interesting thing that I think people will find fascinating because it it's going to make you rethink a lot of things because you're going to get information that maybe you didn't think about or thought about differently. Here's what I want to ask you. So where are we headed right now? Because this, I feel like this forum is going to keep changing in some ways. Do you see capitalism kind of going away and just we're really going to shift to like a a democratic socialism kind of like what Europe is saying or where it's just going to still be its own thing because it's too embedded maybe in the American spirit what it means to us you know and that sort of thing I mean the American dream really is built 
upon the idea of capitalism. You can come. Yes, it the is. streets are paved with gold, they used to say a century ago. You know? Work hard and you will get somewhere. Right. I, I think it's hard. It's hard for me to imagine an America that is not capitalist. It genuinely is. I just, it doesn't add up. I think if I could pr- put myself in the mindset of somebody who's born, you know, 10 years from now, they may see this completely different. These, mm-hmm. these young people are always up to something. But there is, this, <laughs> there is this movement that we're covering in the last episode of the series that mm-hmm. I am fascinated by because they have mm. actually changed my mind about some things. Oh. They're called the degrowthers. And what they want mm. is they say, you know, the world relies on GDP as a measure of how well we're doing. Okay, okay great. GDP grows. We all get more jobs. We get money. We get bridges. We get towers. We get roads. Right. These people are saying we need a planned reduction in GDP. We need to shrink the GDP mm-hmm. or keep the economy at the same size because on the way, on this relentless march to GDP up, 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 we have destroyed the planet. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, for a long time, we weren't aware of what we were doing to the environment. Fair enough. Like it just, we didn't really have a global perspective. But since we become aware that destroying the environment is actually having really negative effects, you have increasingly serious people, like people whose title is economist, saying this thing that would have been sacrilege even a decade ago, maybe the GDP should shrink in Western nations, in big industrialized nations like the U.S. and in Europe, Western Europe. Maybe we should just be satisfied with what we have and we should not grow. And I think that is remarkable because, number one, how does a person with a Ph.D. in economics think that, right? That was where I started. It was like, how could you possibly think that? But then I spoke to some of them and they say it is existential. Like communism versus capitalism, it is again existential. If we lose this fight, if we keep growing the way we grow, 3% every year worldwide, we end up with no planet. We end up with nothing. And I don't know, man, I, you know, I said to one of the economists, I said, you know, you know, an American politician could never win on a platform of degrowth. And he said, you remember RFK giving that speech in Kansas about the GDP does not measure how healthy our kids are. The GDP does not measure how clean the the water and the air are. And he said to me, he's like, my understanding is RFK could have gotten elected if he hadn't been shot. So I don't know. There's a degrowth argument right there in 1968. And the American people applauded it. And I was like, okay, that is absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Again, I cannot imagine this being real, but you see the Times covering degrowth, the Financial Times covering degrowth, the Economist covering degrowth, like these serious heady mm-hmm. papers now taking it into account in a way that 10 years ago they would have laughed it out of the room. And I find that really fascinating. I do. I think RFK Hattie Live was, I think, seen as an anti war Democrat. And that would mean certainly with Vietnam and everything. There's something about that. I think what's interesting about that point of view, I, well, I agree with you. It's going to be hard for people to accept that. But I think it's because, once again, things are tied to the market. And the market only rewards growth. And not only growth, it rewards projections of growth, you know, which is crazy yeah. to me. So, like, I predict we're going to grow 2%. You know, it, you only grew 1%. Sorry. Yeah, but you wanted me to predict it. How am right. I supposed to know? <laughs> you said take a guess. I took like, a guess. I think we should get rid of projections, you know. I'm on board at, for that. As the first thing. Why the fuck do I need to project something? How about you just look at our the strength of what we are, you know? Right. It, Everyone and do their that. job. Yes. Why do I have to predict to you how I'm going to do, you, you know? This whole predictive economy is like a gamesmanship, you know, yes. which is something that may need to shift too. But 
I agree. There, there's never a reward for just strength. There's only a reward for growth. And there, there, I've thought about that too. Why is that? You know, and part of it, you understand, you can see trends, of course, with that. You know, if is a company losing steam? You know, is it losing connection? Is it losing its connection with its consumer base? You know, sometimes those numbers can tell you that thing, you know. And as sometimes yeah, they're great indicators. They're yeah. really this is the reason we started using GDP is during the depression. Everyone was like, what the hell happened? We need to find a way of measuring this crap. And GDP was what they came up with. Simon yeah. Kuznets was like, all right, we're going to add up everything the economy does. <laughs> yeah. And and like, okay, cool. Right. We, we now, like, we have some grounding. We have some basis. The question of whether or not that number will always need to march forward. I mean, in our minds right now, it is so deeply baked into our minds that yes, the answer is yes. A hundred years from now, when there are no more forests, I don't know what they'll be thinking. Probably not, right? It's tough to say. I think for people to connect this to, they may call it doomsday analysis. Mm. You know, I'm I'm always concerned about doomsday analysis and things like, even with climate. You know, once again, it's a generational thing. I love talking about this. Oh, yeah. It's great because there is such a big difference. I grew up feeling like, can we just keep things clean? Like, <laughs> how about that? You know, because there was all those litter commercials. You know. And all that kind of stuff, you know, the guy crying when he saw yeah. the trash, you know, but no one said it, the earth is going to explode, you know, if we don't do this, you know, right. we said, let's, it is our duty to keep this clean. You know, this is our home. And I think that should always be the first thought, you know, at the, at the least, can we keep this place right. clean? Because starting with that gets rid of so many problems. But if you say, if you don't do this in 10 years, there will be no planet. I go, okay, well, how am I going to? How are we going to win and lose this bet? Right. Um, <laughs> right. No, you're absolutely right. And this is the doomerism. I think the young people want to engage in the doomerism, but then you think that out to like its logical conclusion. It's like, oh, wait, you're just saying I'm screwed. Well, that's right. not useful. That's not helping anything. You and know, di- dinosaurs would be the first to tell you Earth not going anywhere. Right. Dinosaurs going somewhere, but <laughs> Earth not going. <laughs> Let Gen Z know. Give them, give them a little historical perspective. God, I love the kids. I love the kids. <laughs> yeah, dinosaurs like, hold on a second. <laughs> Earth gonna be fine. <laughs> I can't breathe, but Earth gonna be fine. Right, Earth will always last. Earth will. Oh, find Earth is like you know what? You guys keep having that argument. I'm not going anywhere. Right. I I got another billion years before the sun goes away right. and then we got to really work. long 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 after you all you'll all blow each other up oh god doomerism uh, again yeah i mean i get it though i'm not slamming it i don't want to be you know yelling from my lawn type of thing but uh but i do believe that people on the right who dismiss it completely are being irresponsible tenants you know yeah it's like you got to be more responsible than that you can't just you can't just connect it to jobs and these type of things and make political arguments you know what the like when you see the what's happening to the coral reefs and everything, that is criminal, you know. In, in our oceans, it's terrible. It's painful you know? to and watch that's it about keeping about. things clean, getting all that trash out of the oceans and that type of right. thing, right. you know, and and not uh, destroying it so much, you know. <sighs> Who knows? Who knows? Certainly not me. Has there uh, any things that you've taken away from this that were surprising for you uh, doing this series? On capitalism, you're like, wow, you know, that's, I never looked at that, you know. I think I had not really understood that in the sev- in the early 70s when Milton Friedman was writing, he was writing about woke, what he perceived to be woke capitalism. He oh, was saying companies should not be worried about the environment or women's oh, yeah. rights or black people. Companies should make money. And I 
am obsessed with Vivek Ramaswamy. I just, there is something about him. I cannot take my eyes off of this man. That's I interviewed hilarious. him this summer. And really? to hear him go up against woke capitalism, I'm like, brother, you are saying the same thing that they were saying 50 years ago mm-hmm. that got us in all this trouble. So that's, that to me, that swing of the pendulum back and forth, I had not realized that. I thought woke capitalism was like this newfangled thing. And of course, Milton Friedman never used the word woke, but I didn't realize how right. much of this push for business to just make money was about business should not be socially responsible. That was a big surprise. And the other big surprise to me was the degrowthers, how convincing I found them. I am a, I am a, I have you to know, look more into that. Yeah. It's fascinating. I stopped eating meat. And it's like, you know, it's like a small thing. It's like an individual Mm -hmm. thing. That sounds really silly. Mm -hmm. But I was like, these passionate, smart people who have PhDs in economics are saying something different than I've ever heard. Hmm. And I am inclined to, I'm inclined to take on board what they're saying, to at least take it seriously. There's some, there's some fascinating thinkers out there. Give it some credence. Yeah. What is your, what's your take on Vivek to talk about politics for a quick second? Do you think he is representative of any kind of voice that is like he's at the start of something? Is he kind of a one-off kind of a... I get in trouble. I get in trouble with my colleagues for this because Mm -hmm. I find him enthralling. I do. Mm -hmm. I find the way he speaks and communicates Mm -hmm. so cleanly, so clearly, the way he can bat anything away, any critique away. Mm -hmm. I find it very hard to stop watching him. Most people I know, even, even people who are on the conservative end of things, they think that he's a fraud. They're not buying it. They think, oh, he's young. He doesn't know anything. He's wet behind the ears. Mm-hmm. I happen to be the one, like one of the one of the people who finds Vivek Ramaswamy impossible to stop watching. I just yeah. think he represents something I can't quite put my finger on, but I'm curious to see where he's going to be in, in five to 10 years, you know? Yeah, he may represent something. Like, once again, you asked me at the time, did I see that as a thing? That may be what's happening with Vivek right now is that, you have to not take it out of politics. And what is he representing? Like, you know, the way that social media has, you know, uh, given us the citizen journalists, you know, where mm-hmm. anybody can be a journalist now, you know, or anybody can be a theater critic or that type of thing. Uh, Trump kind of opened the door to anybody can be, can yeah. lead the leader of the free world. You don't need to be in the Senate for this amount of time, you know, yeah. that type of thing. You can come from industry, who cares? And so Vivek may be pushing that door even wider open there you in go. terms of who has the right to own this particular space, you know. I like that. I like that theory. You it don't have be. to have served in the Senate. You don't have right. to have been a governor. You could just be a guy who's really, really good at making money and very smart. And you can talk the people into voting for you. Yeah. Yeah. I like that as a as an idea. It's possible. That could that really could change government because I saw this term I hadn't seen before. Uh, I don't know where it came from, but it was called uh, uh, necrocracy, I guess, the, the necrocracy, where, you know, like, uh, you see how, you know, Biden and, and Biden and Trump, you know, are both, oh, yeah. you know, around that 80. You have uh, Diane Feinstein getting criticized. You have yeah. Mitch McConnell, who, you know, really needs to rethink even continuing past this point. Uh Nancy Pelosi just announced she was going to run again. Where yeah. people are going, Nancy, you tricked us. This you, we thought you were going to like. Why aren't you letting new faces and new right. blood come in? And this could be kind of a reaction. I'm, when I say Vivek, there could be a movement that's a reaction to this entrenched elitism that is around politics. You know, that is just for the elites. 
I think about that, too. I think part of the reason that I find him compelling is this personal story of mm-hmm. I'm an immigrant. Right. I have this lovely wife. I'm a good dad. I mean, I'm I'm like old fashioned about politics. And when a politician's like says I'm a good dad, that that gets me, you know, right in the heart. Mm-hmm. And I you know, I think Vivek is a, is a shtick. I think a lot of him is shticky and I don't think he's at all experienced enough to run this country. But like you, you come from a a position where the two main candidates are like, I'm a great granddad or like Trump. (laughs) What kind of dad is he? I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. I'm a reporter, but like to see this wholesome man with his wholesome wife and his wholesome kids, it's like, wow, maybe, maybe the young people really should get in there and, and, and take it over. The image of it all. Yeah. To me, uh, when he talks about things that seem to be, he's placating a certain portion of the right. Like when he says he wants to get rid of the FBI. And to me, that's like based around, that they think the uh, the shadow government, whatever, is controlling right. things. This, you know, the, the uh, deep state, as they call it. And it's like, stop it with getting rid of the FBI. Please. Just stop it. You're not getting Please. rid of the FBI. There's yeah. no reason. Getting rid of the FBI does way more good things than it does bad. You know, yes. it's not been perfect. We know that. We know some sure. of the fucked up things that it's sure. done. And, you know, once again, a lot of these government agencies that the right wants to get rid of, once again, I'll say civil service jobs where we're, Black people, people of color found work because mm-hmm. they weren't being hired in private mm-hmm. institutions. And so a lot who loses these jobs were. And I'm shocked that people like Vivek can just say they'll erase all these jobs and make these people unemployed. And there's no price to pay for it. When Hillary Clinton talked about that with coal mines and people are mad at her and said, she just talked about you not having to work in a coal right. mine. You know, who's. Who's who's like the cheerleader for working in coal mines? You should you should applaud that goal. You know? This is the thing that's so heartbreaking. And this is when we talk about like at the beginning, you know, people voting in their interests. This is what gets so hard about it. If right. I'm working in a coal mine, it is in my interest to not yes, vote for the candidate. But that wants is to it shut in your down. interest? You but know? also, right. Do right. I want my kid working in a coal mine? Probably not. Right. Probably right. not. Oh, man. Very interesting. Well, we'll see how this all shakes out. Um no, King, it's so nice talking to you. It's such a great, I feel like we can keep chopping this up for a while. But um, this is uh, Today Explain, uh, Blame Capitalism, just started Friday. And uh, we'll see this for how many How many weeks is this going on? The next four Fridays, so every Friday in September. Okay, oh, every Friday in September. So you guys got a nice, nice way to start your fall here. You talk about the fall of capitalism. <laughs> 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 no! <laughs> See, and my cynical says, yeah, as soon as brothers start making some money, people want to get rid of capitalism. I mean, yes, though. But yes, though. It's okay to be cynical in that vein. Yes. Right, exactly. You know, I own a home. Let's get rid of property. Right. No, <laughs> what are you doing? Stop it. We just made it. I know, exactly. Thanks so much. Today, explain, you guys. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>